0: Burden-taking, wonderful power in the blood. It's good to be with you this morning, worshiping our great God. Uh, We will be in Galatians chapter 5. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. In Pew Bibles, it will be page 974. And we will be looking... Specifically, at verses 1 through 12, chapter 5 of Galatians. We live in an age where where things that are cut and dry aren't so appealing. An age where, for the sake of of tolerance and political correctness, a a synchronistic blend of, of gray is preferred over and against things that are offensively black and white and in stark contrast to one another. To be sure, there are are gray areas in life, but where God in His Word has called something black and its opposite white, then we must do the same. Uh, In his letter to the churches of Galatia, the Apostle Paul has drawn some very distinct lines where very distinct lines need to be drawn. He has, for the most part, been drawing the line between true and false religion. He has been driving home the fact that salvation by faith alone and Christ alone can never be intermingled with salvation by works in any way. In chapter 1, Paul says that he is astonished that these Galatian believers are turning to a different gospel, which he says is no gospel at all. Only the one true gospel of Jesus Christ is truly good news, and any being who preaches a different one is accursed. In chapter 2, in verses 15 and 16, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Pretty black and white. In chapter 4, he carries on this distinction between true and false religion, using, using the example of, of Sarah and Hagar. He shows, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the true spiritual descendants of Abraham are those who have been reborn of the Spirit according to promise, in the line of Sarah, the free woman, and Isaac, and who by exercising the same faith as Abraham are accounted righteous before God. And those who seek right standing with God through their own self-effort and agency show themselves to be spiritual descendants of Hagar, the slave woman. So by way of allegory, Paul was saying that That the true religion of the Bible is that that trusts solely on Christ's active and passive obedience for forgiveness of sin and justification before the Father. And false religion is that that trusts in self and one's own self-righteousness for right standing before the Father. The former leads to freedom and the latter keeps one bound as a slave to the law and sin and under its condemnation. And this is where we find ourselves at in our passage this morning. So, before we go further, let's read Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again To every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, nor circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So in in this passage, um, we see there are three contrasts that we are going to consider. The first is the contrast between true and false religion. We're going to be looking at verse 1. The second is the contrast between true and false believers uh, in verses 2 through 6. And the third is the contrast between true and false teachers in verses 7 through 12. So first... The contrast between true and false religion. Verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christianity is a religion of freedom. And the religion of the Judaizers, and any other works-based religion, for that matter, is a religion of slavery. And this is much of the tenor line of all the Galatians. As I just mentioned in chapter 4, Paul used the Old Testament Scriptures to show that those who are in Christ are the true and free spiritual descendants of Abraham, and those who are not in Christ are descendants of the slave woman Hagar and slaves along with her. Earlier in chapter 4, when speaking of the Galatians' spiritual uh, status before receiving Christ, he says in verse 3 there that, that they, like the rest of mankind, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And in verse 8, when they did not know God, they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And in chapter 3, verse 23, he uses the language of imprisoned captives to describe those who seek justification via the law. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he says it is the very intent of these Judaizers, these false brothers, uh, to spy out the freedom they have in Christ so that they might return them To their former slavery. And Paul is only teaching what what he had received from Jesus. For Jesus teaches the same thing in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. In in verse 34, he says, There, everyone who practices sin is is a slave to sin. And then in verse 31, um, 32, and 36, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. So what exactly is this freedom for which Christ has set us free and we are to stand firm in and not to submit ourselves to a yoke of slavery? Is it the Janice Joplin um, idea of freedom? That freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose? I don't think that's it. I think freedom itself is something that we can... We can lose. So I don't think that's it. Is it the freedom of autonomy that says, I can be what I want, I can do what I want, I can identify as whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting anyone else? The Bible tells us that itself is slavery, slavery to to sin. It's not even the freedom that we enjoy as Americans, as great and as virtuous of a freedom as that is. It's not the freedom for which Christ paid the ultimate price with his life to secure for those who are his. Hear how John Stott uh, explains freedom in Christ. Christ set us free to be free men. Our former state is portrayed as slavery. Jesus Christ is a liberator conversion as an act of emancipation, and the Christian life as a life of freedom. This freedom, as the whole epistle and its context make plain, is not primarily a freedom from sin, but rather from the law. What Christ has done in liberating us, according to Paul's emphasis here, is not so much to set our will free from the bondage of sin as to set our conscience free from the guilt of sin. The Christian freedom he describes is freedom of conscience, freedom from the tyranny of the law, the dreadful struggle to keep the law with a view to winning the favor of God. It is the freedom of acceptance with God and of access to God through Christ. So the freedom we are talking about is not so much a freedom from sinning, but freedom from guilt and condemnation that the law lays on us for being breakers of it. It's the freedom of knowing that even though I still sin in the flesh that remains, I am declared not guilty before the Father because I stand before Him washed in the blood of Jesus and clothed in His righteousness. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It is freedom of knowing that Christ has paid the price to buy me back from the just condemnation of God's perfect law, that the curse and condemnation that was mine has been taken by the only acceptable substitute, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And it is the freedom to obey God and His law, not as a means to earn His favor by what we do, but to show our love to Him for what He has done. This is the freedom for which Christ has set us free. As Romans 8 say, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in the last half of verse 1, he says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is warning the Galatians and us that this freedom we have in the gospel can be lost in a sense. It's important that Paul mentions this because the emphatic, triumphant dec- declaration in the first half of verse 1 might lead us to believe that, that this, this freedom is, is unwavering and can't slip from our grasp. So there are at least two things he tells us we must do if we are to keep a firm grip on the freedom that we have in Christ. The first is to stand firm. It says, therefore stand firm in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. And, and here there is an interesting parallel but with uh, political freedom. It takes vigilance and responsibility for a nation or a group of people to maintain political independence and freedom. Paul says that this is just as true with our spiritual freedom. Free believers need to stand firm in their freedom. And this word stand firm is essentially a military word that, that mixes together ideas of keeping alert, being strong, resisting attack, resisting attacks from the enemy, and sticking together. And, and, it, and it is in and through the church that we are at least weekly reminded, via the ordinary means of grace, of the freedom that we have in Christ and built up in it. The preaching of the gospel, the, uh, the taking of the Lord's Supper that we just did together, Uh, here this morning. Baptism, the fellowship of the saints, learning God's word together, these are the major means that God has ordained to help us stand firm in our freedom and uh, from the condemnation of the law. So despite the fact that we have already been saved by Christ, we must continually be diligent to remember, rejoice in, and live in accord with our salvation to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose our sense of freedom from enslavement to guilt and fear. The second thing that Paul says we need to do looks back to the truth found in Galatians chapter 4, that a works-based religion and all religion not founded on the solid rock of Christ is slavery. He says, "...do not submit again to a yoke of slavery." Uh, The Galatian Christians had been pagans who were under the slavery of idolatry. If you would look over in your Bibles over to um, chapter 4 and read with me verses 8 through 10. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God... How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, those slaves who you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. So Paul is saying if they seek to add the necessity of law-keeping to their salvation, they are essentially returning to their former state of slavery and paganism. There's, there is no difference. They are, they are slaves either way. And he refers to it as a yoke of slavery. A lot of you have probably heard this before, but a, a yoke refers to a bar of wood that formed a harness um, that is put over a set of oxen when they're working. And it was usual that a younger ox would be yoked to a older, more mature ox to learn from, from, from that older, uh, wiser, more experienced ox. And, and the the major load would be taking, taken by that older ox. He would be doing the bulk of the work. <clears throat> In terms of our salvation, we are either yoked to the law or we are yoked to Christ. And the law is not an older, wiser ox that lightens our burden, but is more like a stubborn taskmaster that only adds to our burden. For it doesn't take away our sin, but it only makes us aware of it and adds to our guilt and condemnation. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, where he says, and I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit. Um, he says, Come to me, come to me, all you who labor under the oppressive yoke of the law, you who are heavy laden with the guilt of your sins, come to me, and you will find rest. For I have taken the burden of the law upon myself, fulfilling its demands and satisfying its penalty. That's why his yoke is easy and his burden is light, because like the older, wiser ox, he has taken the burden of the law upon himself, obeying it perfectly and paying the penalty for our sin on the old rugged cross, shedding his blood for our forgiveness. So those who are united to him, yoked to him by faith, are free from the guilt and the condemnation and the burden that the law brings. That is freedom. That is rest for your soul. And now freed from that burden, we are free to walk alongside Jesus, to learn from Him. Free to obey Him out of love for what He has done for us and not out of fear of condemnation. So now Paul is going to move on to spell out the consequences for those who would be followers of the false, of the false religion of law-keeping and, and those who would be followers of the true religion of faith in Christ. Read with me verses um, 2 through 6 of Galatians 5. <clears throat> Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again In beginning for verse 2, the way he does, uh, Paul is mobilizing his whole authority as an apostle. He's saying, listen up, look, I, Paul, am telling you this. The one specially set apart to speak the very words of God is speaking to you, and this matter before us is of utmost importance. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage, no profit to you. And, and circumcision, as the false teachers were pushing it here, was, was neither just simply a physical operation nor a ceremonial rite, but it was a theological symbol. It stood for a certain type of religion. It was, the, it was the sign of a certain type of belief system, and that religion was salvation by good works in obedience to the law. The slogan of the false teachers uh, we get from Acts 15.1. And it says, unless you are circumcised and keep the law, you cannot be saved. This was the slogan of the false teachers. They were declaring that faith in Christ was insufficient for salvation, that circumcision and keeping the law must be added to it. Instead of Christ finishing what Moses began, they were claiming that Moses finished what Christ had begun. So now Paul describes the position of these would-be false believers in in these verses. He says in in verse 2 and 3 that they are those who accept circumcision. They are those who have received the theological symbol of law-keeping. And in verse 3, he says, Since they have received said symbol, they are obligated to keep the whole law. They are seeking to be justified by the law. In verse 4, Paul goes on to show just how grave and how perilous of a position this is to take and he does it by laying out three results of taking this position three serious consequences of taking such a position in verses 2 and 4 First he says in verse 2 that Christ will be of no advantage to you He is telling them that if you take circumcision and seek to mingle your own works with Christ's for the for your justification when your day comes to stand before the Father for your judgment, Christ will be of no advantage, no profit to you. Just as all of our works are tarnished by the taint of sin and are but filthy rags in terms of salvation, to seek to mingle those works with the work of Christ is to taint it and to make it of no worth. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Then he says in verse 4 that those who take this position are severed from Christ and have fallen away from, from grace. Um, I want to make it a point here that Paul is not discussing here the question of whether a genuine believer can lose his or her salvation. He's only saying that people who may once have made a profession of faith, if they are now truly seeking to be justified by the law, must not really have a relationship with Christ. They are severed from Christ and have fallen away from the grace that was offered and available to them. So to add circumcision is to lose Christ. To seek to be justified by the law is to fall from grace. You cannot have it both ways. It is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can. You have to choose between a religion of law and a religion of grace, between Christ and circumcision. You cannot add circumcision or penance, or church attendance, or baptism, or I'm, I'm a, just a good person, I'm a little bit better than everybody else. Whatever else, you cannot add that to Christ as necessary for salvation or grounds for your justification before God because Christ is the only sufficient way for salvation. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ, and to lose Christ is to lose all hope of right standing with God. Now in verses 5 and 6, the pronouns change from you to we. Paul has been addressing his readers and warning them of the dangers of falling from grace, but, but now he includes himself and describes true believers who stand in the gospel of grace. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So the emphasis here has changed from circumcision and works of the law to faith. And there are two statements made about it here, made about faith. First, in verse, says, he says, By faith we wait And what we are waiting for is said to be the hope of righteousness. It is the expectation for the future which our justification brings. The hope of righteousness. It is our coming eternity with Christ in heaven. And for this future salvation, we eagerly wait. We do not work for it. We wait for it by faith. By trusting in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. We do not strive anxiously to secure it. Or imagine that we have to earn it by works. Um, it's it's kind of like those savings bonds you used to get from your grandparents. Anybody remember those? You get them. You get like a. Are those even still a thing? Are they? I don't know. <laughs> right. No. Okay. Anyways, you get like a hundred dollar savings bond, right? That was yours. That saving bonds was yours. It was it was guaranteed, right? But you couldn't receive it in its fullness till like five or ten years down the road. And that, that's how it is with our justification. It, it is ours now, but we, we await eagerly for, for the fullness of it at the, at, when our time comes to be with the Lord. Secondly, he says in verse 6, in not so many words, that in Christ all that matters is faith. When a person is in Christ, nothing more is necessary but faith. And neither circumcision nor uncircumcision nor anything else in between can improve our standing before God. All that is necessary to be accepted by God is to be in Christ, and we are in Christ by faith. So, does all this emphasis on faith mean we can just live as we please? is the christian life so completely a life of faith and good works and obedience to the law simply <clears throat> is is the christian life so completely a life of faith that good works and obedience to the law simply do not matter at all god forbid may it never be so verse 13 of chapter 5 says for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity For the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Freedom in Christ is never licensed to sin. We are freed from sin and the power of the law, but we are not freed to sin. It is freedom to serve one another through love and not obligation. So back to verse 5, it says, For through the Spirit... By faith we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. Through the Spirit, the Christian life is most certainly a life of faith, but it is not only a life of faith. It is, it is a life in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who indwells us produces good works of love and the fruit of the Spirit found in this same letter in chapter 6, verses 22 through 23. And though circumcision or uncircumcision count for nothing, Faith working through love counts for everything. It's it's not that works of love are added to faith as some secondary ground of acceptance with God, but the faith which saves is the faith which works and issues from love. Our works of love are the fruit of our salvation, not the root or foundation of our salvation. And though we are saved by faith alone, it is not a faith that is alone. True, saving faith is accompanied by the fruit of loving obedience. So, we've considered the contrast between false and true religion, false and true believers, and now we move on to the contrast between the false and true teachers. Uh, Read with me verses 7 through 12 of Galatians chapter 5. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear His penalty, whoever it is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Uh, Verse 7, we see that The Galatian believers had started off on the right foot, but someone had hindered them from obeying the truth. So to run well in the Christian race is not just to believe the truth or just to behave well. It is to obey the truth, applying belief to behavior. What the Christian believes and how the Christian behaves are two parts of a whole. Their creed is expressed in their conduct, and their conduct is derived from their creed. So the Galatian believers began well, believing the truth that Christ had set them free from the law. They obeyed it, enjoying the liberty which Christ had given them. But now someone had hindered them, had thrown an obstacle on the track of their Christian life and had knocked them off course. False teaching had resulted in wrong belief that resulted in wrong behavior. And Paul says in verse 8 that we know this teaching is false because it doesn't come from the one who called these Galatians. In Galatians 1.6, uh, Paul says that God had called them to grace in Christ, whereas the false teachers were calling them to a doctrine of merit, of making themselves right before God. These two things are diametrically opposed to one another. One must be true and the other must be False. The one that must be true is the one that comes from God and is consistent with the Scriptures. The other must be unwaveringly opposed. And false teaching must be opposed because, as we have seen already, it hinders from obeying the truth. And verses 10 and 12 tell us it results in confusion, in troubling. It had troubled and confused these Galatian believers and is unsettling to the church. Most of all, it must be opposed, according to verse 9, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One of the most serious things about false teaching is that it spreads. And it is not as if we're talking about differing views on the millennial reign of Christ or or the end time stuff. We're talking about how individuals are put in right standing with God how souls are spared from the darkness and eternal torments of justice in hell to everlasting life in light of their Creator. It is the most serious of matters, and Paul knows this. That's why he says what he says in verse 12, that he wishes those who are unsettling you, those causing you to lose your faith and leave the gospel to which you were called would emasculate themselves, that they would just go all the way with this circumcision that they promote and make themselves eunuchs. To our ears, this sounds harsh and malicious, but Paul understood the seriousness of the situation. And because he did, we can be certain of his being motivated by his deep love for the people of God and the gospel of God. When it comes to teaching on who God is, who Jesus is, and how we are saved, we cannot waver an inch. That's one of the reasons we read the historical creeds that we read, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. They're summaries of these very doctrines and remind us of their importance. And may we have such concern for God's church and God's word as Paul had, that his wish would be ours also, that all false teachers would be silenced. In verse 11, Paul turns the attention away from the false teachers to himself. Verse 11 says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Uh, From this verse, it seems that the false teachers had been claiming that Paul was also a proponent of their views. That he also preached and advocated circumcision. He says, if that were the case, then, then my message wouldn't be offensive to people. And I wouldn't be persecuted, so why am I still being persecuted? Paul is setting himself and the false teachers in stark contrast. Uh, to, to one another. The issue is very black and white. To preach circumcision is, and, and salvation by works or any other way than Christ is to tell sinners that they can save themselves by their own good works. It is a message that is inoffensive to human pride and is popular because it is flattering. It is, it is a <clears throat> To preach Christ is to tell them that they cannot save themselves and that only Christ can save them through the cross. The message of Christ crucified is offensive to human pride and unpopular because it is unflattering. So to preach works based salvation is to avoid persecution, but to preach Christ is to invite it. So I ask you this morning what message have you received? Are you trusting the message of the self-help gurus that pose as preachers of the gospel that tell you that essentially you're a good person and that Jesus is just an addition to make your your already good life a, a, a little more healthy and a little more wealthy and to be a little better version of the self you already are? If that's the message you have received, I tell you this morning that you are without hope. You're without hope beyond this life. The true gospel tells us that our greatest need is not just a better version of ourselves, but to be restored to right relationship with God and to be remade into the image of Christ, not just a better version of ourselves, to be remade into the image of Christ. It tells us that the standard by which we are judged is not of our own making, but is God Himself. And God Himself is perfection. As Jesus said to the rich young ruler, no one is good except God alone. And Romans 3 tells us the very same thing. Receive Christ this morning, turn from your sin, your rebellion against God, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, and walk in newness of life. And a final word to those who do know Christ as their only hope in life and death. I think even as believers, we all at times veer um, into the ditch of thinking that maybe Christ isn't sufficient. There's something more I need to be doing to add to to my to my salvation. Or we veer off into the other ditch to where you know Christ is so sufficient that it doesn't matter what I do. We all tend to to lean one way or another at different times. And I say to the one who is veering towards legalism, look afresh to Christ this morning. Look afresh to Christ this morning. Be comforted by His final words at the cross that it is finished. Sit at His feet like Mary and find rest for your souls. To those who are Drifting more to licentiousness, look afresh to Christ this morning. Be reminded of the great price which He paid for your salvation, His body broken and blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take His yoke upon you and walk closer with Him, learning from Him, becoming like Him, bearing fruit from the love you have for Him. Let's pray. Father God, what a great salvation we have in Christ, and apart from Him, Lord, we have no hope, no hope to stand before You justified, Lord. I lift up all who who are separated, who are severed from Christ right now, Lord, and just pray that You would change hearts and give eyes to see to those who need to see Christ and receive Him. Lord, give them Your Spirit that they might repent and trust on Him. Lord, help us as believers to to work out our faith in fear and trembling and, and work out our faith in love, Lord, for one another. And Lord, help us to proclaim the gospel in our lives and through our preaching and our words that it drowns out all the other false religions and false teachings out there, Lord. That we may lift high the cross and lift high the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.